Hey, and thanks so much for taking a moment to visit our podcast. Our mission at Antioch FBC is to grow in the knowledge and love of Jesus and go to our neighbors in the nations. We want you to be encouraged by this podcast and hope even more that you would come be a part of what God is doing in the community of Antioch. To find out more, visit us at www.antiochfirstbaptist.org. And now, stay tuned for a message from Pastor Matt. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. She knelt down to ask him for something. What do you want, he asked her. Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? We are able, they said to him. He told them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. When the 10 disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, Lord, is over them, and those in high position." act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Devin. Anybody recognize that last verse? Hopefully you say yes. That has been our memory verse for the month of November. Have all of you got it memorized? Some, yeah, we're not going to have anybody come up and, and recite it, but that has been our month of November memory verse, and it's fitting that it falls here on this last Sunday in November. This will be our last sermon in the book of Matthew for this year. As those who have been attending here for a while know that for the last several, several, several months we have been going through start to finish from the beginning of Matthew and we're going to make it all the way to the end, I promise. Um, But this will be the last sermon we have this year in Matthew and then we'll pick up our Advent series, as we said, Lauren said this morning, where it's going to be Jesus' name above all names. And we're going to look at that passage in Isaiah where it's prophesied how he will be called those different names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's going to lead us through Advent. And so we'll take a break this week, after this week, and then we'll jump back in um, at the beginning of the year. But just to make sure we know where we are and how we have been walking through this book Again, we find ourselves within this discussion that has been having, this, Jesus has been having with his disciples and those who are following him concerning the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 19, we saw the rich young ruler who was looking to use his wealth and his influence to sort of gain his entrance into the kingdom of heaven. He had everything he wanted. He was quite wealthy and he came to Jesus thinking he could sort of transact his way, if you will, into the kingdom. But if we saw 
that the price was too high for him because we saw that he just walked his, his way with his head held low because he did not want to let go of his riches. So we see from that one cannot use influence or purchase their way into the kingdom of heaven. In the beginning of chapter 20, we looked at this parable that says it's the vineyard workers. And this vineyard owner went out and invited workers into his fields at different times of the day. And all of them, no matter when they came into the work, received the same reward. And that reward was eternal life. And if you remember, the, the vineyard workers became upset. They were upset and enraged that these who came so late received the same payment that they did. And so what that showed us is that one cannot work their way into the kingdom of heaven. And then today, we're going to look at Zebedee and her plea for her sons, James and John, trying to get Jesus to promise that her two boys will sit at the right hand and the left hand in the kingdom. But we'll see that as we walk through this passage, one does not enter into the kingdom through someone else's profession or plea. In all of these accounts that we've been leading up to this point, the rich young ruler, the vineyard workers, and then now today Zebedee's son, in all three it is clearly revealed how one enters into the kingdom of heaven. It's not by means, it's not by influence, it's not by works, it's by the sovereign grace of God the Father. And so here at Antioch we make this our practice each week before we enter into the text we take just a moment of silence to prepare our hearts. As many of you have gone through this week, some of you are with family, and that's a good thing. Some of you are with family, and that's a tough thing. And we want to recognize that. So you may be feeling all sorts of things this morning that you've experienced through this week. And what we want to do during this time is just calm our hearts, to steal our minds so that we can receive the Word of God. And so if you'll do this with me, we'll do just a moment of silence. We'll ask the Spirit to open our ears, to make our minds ready, to be renewed, to soften our hearts. But we acknowledge each week that this might be a time that's uncomfortable for you. Silence sometimes is hard because our minds start wandering and our thoughts start bombarding us. So if in this time you find that happening, simply pray this prayer to yourself. Holy Spirit, calm my mind, make me ready to receive. Let's do just that. Amen. Let's start at that first word in verse 20. What does it say? Then. Anytime we come to a passage of scripture that gives us some sort of indication of time, we need to pay attention to it. Then, it says, the mother of Zebedee's son approached. So when we say then, we mean, let's remember from last week where we left off, where Jesus has just given his third prediction of his forthcoming execution. He has just finished reminding the disciples he'll be mocked, he'll be flogged, and he'll be crucified. Even though he was without sin, even though he does not deserve the sentence he has given, he is willingly walking the road to Calvary. And as soon as he gets done and is finished with that understanding, telling that to the disciples, Zebedee runs up. 
As soon as he gets that last word out, she corners him and says, promise me my boys will be in the place of authority in the kingdom of heaven. Thankfully, Jesus is patient. I wouldn't be. Thankfully, he's kind, because you, can you imagine if you were in that spot, you just laid out to the people who are following you, hey, I'm about to lay down my life for you, and the first thing you hear in response is, yeah, but what's in it for me? <laughs> How do I get to have that place of authority? I would be pretty frustrated if this happened right after I had just said, I'm going to lay down everything for you. Jesus, Jesus just laid before them the most humili humiliating things that he will walk through. And yet he's met with a plea from his followers to make sure they're exalted in the kingdom of God. Jesus is walking towards death on the cross, and yet his disciples are still seeking how they can be elevated. Jesus literally just explained how he will lay down his life and they're competing for authority. They still don't get it. Even after the third time of him telling them, they don't get it. And we can see that if you read the, the rest of it, 20 through 21. The mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. She knelt down to ask him for something. What do you want? He asked her. And she said, promise that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left, in your kingdom. You got to love the heart of a mother, right? She's willing to do anything for her boys. She's willing to corner the, the Messiah who has been leading and teaching them just to make sure I want the best for my boys. <laughs> She's trying to make sure that they get that seat at the left and at the right. I'm sure many of you mothers can, can connect with this. Many of you can understand. I get it. She, she's making sure that her boys are taken care of, but then she finds out quickly she doesn't understand what she's asking at all. She wants her boys to have this place of excellence in the kingdom of heaven, and she's asking Jesus to promise her that this is what they will have and so Jesus takes the time to explain, well, okay, that's what you want. Here's what it really means. Look at the first part of verse 22. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Let's stop right there. So this idea of drinking the cup, it points back to the Old Testament kings. In the Old Testament, the kings in their court would have a position called the cup bearer. And this cup bearer was a highly sought after and a highly uh, elevated position in the king's court because this cup bearer was responsible for making sure that the king stayed alive. And the way that he did that was that any food or any wine that would be presented towards the king, he was willing to first take a bite, to first take a drink. You say, well, that doesn't sound like much to ask. Well, it does when you realize that if anyone wanted to assassinate the king, the most stealth way would be to poison his food or his wine. 
And so what this cupbearer is actually saying is I'm willing to put my life in front of the king's life. I'm willing to take the drink. I'm willing to take a bite of the food in the case that it's poison. And in the case that there's an assassination attempt, I'm willing to die for my king. So when Jesus is saying, are you willing to drink the cup as well? He's referring back to that process and he's understanding, trying to make them understand what that actually means. And we see James and John quickly answer. We are able. I mean, immediately we got it. We're in. But I think in reality, they fully don't understand what Jesus is asking and is meaning by this question. And again, thankful it's Jesus and not me. He, you notice he doesn't like crush their enthusiasm. <laughs> he, he doesn't try to like take them down a notch. He doesn't scold them for not understanding. He is patient with them. He teaches them because he knows, James and John, you need to understand what I'm asking in this question. It's not simply a yes or no. I think the answer to this question is yes and no. I think we'll see what we mean when we keep going. Verse 23, it says, he told them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Man, there's so much packed into this one statement of Jesus. But I want to understand that first we see that Jesus affirms that James and John will indeed drink from this cup. James and John all and all who follow Jesus will be called to drink the cup of sacrifice by laying down their life. This is why the answer first part is yes. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are professing your life to his, you are saying, I'll drink the cup. I'll lay down my life and I will glorify his life. So the answer is yes. But we also need to understand the answer to this question is also no. What do I mean by that? I mean that the answer to this question is no, because you and I, by professing in Jesus, cannot drink this cup on our own power. We can't do it. We can't be good enough. We can't, within our own strength, lay down our lives. We can only drink this cup by the power of the Holy Spirit. The answer is no when we try to do it on our own. The answer is no when we think we can buy our way in or have influence to get into the kingdom of heaven. The answer is no when we think we can be good enough. The answer is no when we try within our own ability and with our own power to live this Christian walk on our own. But when we understand that the the call to drink from this cup can only come if we do it by the power of the Spirit, then the answer becomes yes. 
When we stop trusting in our own abilities, the answer becomes yes. When we stop trusting in our own strength, the answer becomes yes. We can do, as we hear in Proverbs that says, we can trust in the Lord with all our own heart. Lean not to our own understanding. In all our ways, acknowledge him. And it doesn't say we will make the path straight. No, it says he will make our path straight. So when we try to do it on our own, the answer is no, we can't. But when we understand that through the power of the Spirit, we can take the cup, we can drink from the cup that he is professing here, then the answer is yes. And see, we got to make sure that we always are proclaiming a yes and no understanding of drinking this cup. Because I think if we, if we say just yes... If we only teach that the answer is yes, what we easily develop is spiritual pride. We easily can fall back into self-reliance. But when something happens that doesn't go our way, we become confused and disillusioned if all we teach is the answer is yes. When things do not go as we decree or declare them, then what do we do? If we only say the answer is yes. But again, if we only teach that the answer is no, then we lead to defeat. If we only teach that the answer is no, we will live a life of spiritual lethargy. We'll always be defeated. We'll always not be enough. So there's that balance of yes and no. Yes, by the power of the Spirit. No, by our own power. Yes, by the power of Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, we can accomplish great things. No, when we try to self-propel. No, when we try to get the glory for ourselves instead of giving it to the one who gives us the cup. It's only through the power of the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead will we be able to drink from the cup as just as Jesus has said we can. When we are called to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel. But not only does he ask us to drink the cup, he tells us how we even get to be handed the cup. Jesus clearly says in this verse, it is for those from whom it has been prepared by my Father. He's reminding the disciples it is only by the Father's sovereign grace that any of us are able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not because of our sacrifice. It's not because of how good we are. It's not because of the wealth we've obtained. It's not because of the influence or any other way. It is solely by the grace of God that we're even able to come. But look how the disciples respond. Verse 24, when the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. <laughs> now lest we think that this is righteous indignation. Lest we think that the ten other disciples are being holier than James and John and running and going, how could you dare ask him that question? What they're really upset about is they got to ask it first. They're upset that they, James and John, may have gotten a leg up on them. 
They may have gotten to Jesus first, and now they can't have the seat at the left and at the right. They're not upset that they're not understanding the process. They're not upset that they're being completely oblivious to what Jesus has just told them about him going to the cross. They're saying, oh, man, I missed my shot. <laughs> it should have been me first. I wanted that place. I wanted to ask that question. They were mad because James and John jumped in the front of the line. They wanted to be on top as well. But again, man, all through this, we're seeing the patience and the grace of Jesus. Because he didn't scold them. He didn't push them away. He draws them even nearer. Instead of casting them out, he brings them in closer and he continues to teach them. So Jesus called them over, verse 25 says, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. Jesus is gentle with his disciples. Even in moments where that selfishness is so high, he could have gotten frustrated with them. Uh, again, he, he had just laid out his plan to offer himself as the greatest sacrifice, his willingness, again, to be mocked, to be flogged, and to be crucified. And he's still fielding questions from his closest followers about who will be the, the greatest. I imagine if you and I, again, were in that position, we would have just thrown our hands up in disgust and walked away. But Jesus didn't. He drew them ever near. He drew them closer. Again, an example of how loving and patient our Savior truly is with us. But don't miss this. He gives this correlation. He gives this sort of contraction. He gives this example. He says, don't you realize how the Gentile rulers lord it over those who are under their care? Don't you realize how they operate in a system of shame? They operate in a system of pressure. And what he's saying in this moment is the church has to be different. The church has to be different. Jesus is calling us as the church to operate differently than the world. The church must be a place that doesn't lord over its people. The church must be a place where if, and, and, and not really if, when, when sin creeps back into the lives of her members, they're met with encouragement in helping to fight the sin, not shame that they've fallen again. You see that? That's what Jesus is saying. He's like, look, mess up under the Gentile system and see how much pressure you get. See how much shame is thrown on you because you have missed it. See how much they lord over you. But the church, the church is going to operate differently. The church is going to say, hey, when you fall, we're going to draw you closer, not push you away. When you creep back in, when that sin creeps back into your life, that you have fallen over and over and over again, we're not going to stand there and go, can't you get it right? We're going to go, hey, his grace is sufficient. We're going to pull you closer. It doesn't mean that when we do that, we're glorifying the sin 
or we're approving of the sin. No, we're still fighting the sin, but we can't fight sin spread out alone. We fight sin when we're pulled in together. We can fight sin when we're close, when Jesus draws us near, and when the church wraps its arms around those who are with her and says, hey, we're going to walk with you. We're going to continue to fight. We're not going to let this sin rule over your life. We're not going to push you away. We're going to draw you closer. The church is not a place where people should have to think that they have to put up a front. The church is not a place where people feel like they have to hide their struggle with sin. But I'm afraid we've made it that way. I'm afraid we've made the church into a place where people feel like they have to hide their mistakes and keep their struggles hidden. We've created it to be a place where perfection is the expectation. And it can't be. It can't be. Because we know there was only one who was perfect, and that was Jesus. And if we are called to follow Jesus both individually but collectively as a body. If we are called to follow his example, what is the example that he's showing us here when the disciples still don't get it? What is he showing us as the example here when the disciples are still trying to fight for position? Does he push them away? He brings them in. Instead of lording perfection over the life of the church with an expectation for us to achieve it, what we must do is present Jesus' perfect life in place of our life of imperfection. That's how we put on display the grace and the glory of God. We point to Jesus as the perfect one, and we still call ourselves to follow him as close to perfection as we can. But when we do fall, we don't push each other away. We bring each other in. The church must be a place that pulls people closer when they're trapped in the bondage of sin, not cast them out. We pull them closer, again, not to celebrate the sin, but to celebrate the grace that has been given to overcome the power of that sin. We see Jesus continuing in his message, the, verse 26 and 27. He says, it must not be like this among you. Don't be like the Gentiles. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. The way the kingdom of heaven is set up is in order to go up, you must go down. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you must surrender yourself as a servant. And a slave. It's completely opposite. 
of the way everything else in the world works. It's completely opposite of how we've been taught. In order to rise in the kingdom of heaven, we must surrender and go down. Instead of being self-seeking, instead of being self-serving, instead of self-promoting, instead of self-glorifying, we now seek how we can serve others, how we can promote others, how we can glorify God rather than glorifying ourselves. Instead of trying to make things the way we want them, we begin to ask questions like, well, how can we make things the way the Spirit of God wants them? Instead of wanting things that make me feel comfortable, we begin to ask questions like, well, what would make others feel comfortable in order to receive the gospel? Instead of my preferences, we begin to seek out how things could be to help others to feel welcome. It, starts being, it stops being about me, and it starts being about we. How can we grow? How can we help others in their walk with Jesus? How can I lay down my agenda and pick up the collective vision to see more and more people grow in the knowledge and love of Jesus and then be sent out to go to our neighbors and the nations? And we've been given that perfect example here in Jesus when he says in verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. He shows us the perfect example of what it means to drink from the cup and to lay down our lives for the sake of others. And what a beautiful way to segment into the season of Advent than to remember that our God came down to us. And he served us by giving his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom is important because it helps us understand that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we can go free. The price of our freedom has been paid. One of the theologians I was studying this for this, for this, for this word, he said it this way. He said, he who did nothing wrong was condemned for everything so that we who have done everything wrong may be condemned for nothing. That's the message of the gospel. He did that for you. And maybe you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus because you've been, again, like the rich young ruler, trying to use your own means and your own influence to earn your way in. 
Or maybe you've been like the vineyard worker and think, oh, I've done enough work. Of course he's going to let me in. I was here early. Of course I'm going to get that reward. What I hope that you've heard by the power of the Spirit of God is that you can't in your own power. It is only by the grace of God calling you to himself, convicting you of your sin, and then you professing that Jesus has been the ransom for you, that you are saved. So again, just like Jesus did in this passage, if this morning you're convicted by that, no matter if you've been here for decades or if this is the first time here with us this morning and you know that the Spirit of God is convicting you of that, we don't push that away. We bring that in. And we welcome that conviction because that is the beautiful picture of how Jesus is stirring within you the understanding that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the only way that you can come to the Father is through him. So if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus, I would love to pray with you, to talk with you this morning on how you can do that. Maybe you want to jump in. Maybe you hear what we've, we've said today and go, you know what, it has, maybe it has been about me. How do I make it about we? How, how do I become a part of this body? How do I join in together with who is God has called here and say, I want to commit my life to serving Jesus through serving this body? Man, I'd love to talk with you about what that looks like to join together with us as we see Jesus continuing to lead us and guide us. But maybe you have professed faith in him. And maybe you see yourself more like James and John in this passage. Continuing to try to make it all about you. Maybe you need to repent this morning and ask the Father's forgiveness for being self-serving for being self-glorifying, for making it all about what your preferences are or what you want things to be instead of making it about how can we serve others? How can we lay down our lives to serve as Jesus served us and gave us the perfect example of that? Whatever it is this morning, let's take just a few minutes to consider those things, to ask the Spirit of God to convict us, to show us how we need to repent and then we'll come together and sing again.